Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today we're going to be discussing cookbooks by unusual chefs with unusual recipes. Um, the first up is... And a gen- genuinely unusual background. Yeah, un- unusual backgrounds. And the first one up, we're going to be talking to Meredith Erickson. Um, I, I love this restaurant. They, they, they really, if I ever had to, if I ever wanted to go back and work in a restaurant, I would love working at Joe Beef because <laughs> they have so much fun. And this particular uh, title is Joe Beef, as the last one was, uh, colon, Surviving the Apocalypse. And, and I think Meredith will explain that title. I hope she'll, I hope she'll explain it. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember whether she explained it to us or not. The one, the one thing I can assure you about the people who cook at Joe Beef is that they sure have a good time. Meredith Erickson, I just so much enjoyed this cookbook. Joe Beef is actually the second of the Joe Beef cookbooks because uh, this one, the first one was The Art of Living According to Joe Beef, and this one is called Surviving the Apocalypse, Another Cookbook of Sorts. And I think from the titles, listeners should be getting a hint that this is written with a great sense of style and humor. <laughs> and, and, and tongue, Thank you. And tongue firmly planted in cheek. Oh yeah. Well, the recipes yes. are very real, though. Especially what was the one I loved? The the, um, well, the sovereign peaches. Or what was that? That was so funny. <laughs> the the can- cardinal peaches. Cardinal peaches with the canned peaches. I just thought it was great. But um, yeah. So, but the the premise of this book is what? <laughs> yes. The, the premise of this book is that um, in 2014, 2015, the three of us, that's Fred, David, and I, were each going through a bit of a personal apocalypse. Um, One of Fred's best friends, the oyster shucker from Toronto, John Bill, um, was dying of cancer, and he has since passed away. Uh, and David um, was having a you know a difficult time very publicly with um, alcohol addiction, and he has since gone to rehab. And for my own part, I was moving back from London, England, and uh, was going through a bit of a difficult uh, end of relationship and divorce. And oh, we kind of looked around <laughs> culturally. Uh, what was happening, and, you know, Fred and David each have three children, um, yeah. and I don't have children, and I, we were thinking, you know, if I were to have a daughter, that I don't really identify with what I see culturally happening at the moment at all, with this kind of Instagram, uh, Insta-worthy, everything by the minute. I felt, I felt that while I think that millennials themselves are extremely sharp kids, that a lot of people didn't know how to make anything on their own. And I felt worried, and I felt like a sense of doom every day, and Fred and David felt the same. And, you know, you, you, since the first book was such a success, we had a lot of people coming to us immediately, you know, what's your sophomoric venture? What is the second project you're going to do? <laughs> and everything felt forced uh, early on after that first book. 
And then, you know, once we sort of hitting the apocalypse and thinking about the end of the world, well, you know, Fred and David are both preppers. They both kind of are prepared to live off the grid. Uh, we, they both have um, cellars that run quite deep, and so we decided in our book to include a centerfold of, of over 30 cellar items, including cordials and hams. <laughs> and, Lots of cordials. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and preserves. Pickles. Explain uh, this is a, a is a pull out. It's a, a large pull out. I had trouble getting it all the way unfolded, but it's yeah, wonderful. It's wonderful. You know, you should. It's um, it was a lot of fun creating that. And uh, with the first book, we had 125 recipes, and we thought, you know, second time around, <laughs> we're not going to cook as much. We're going to make much less. There's going to be more prose. And in the end, we did something like 155. We did more <laughs> recipes because we exactly that apocalyptic feeling I was talking about. We just wanted to cook more and be alone more and be with our families more and, and, and make your own soap and cough drops and make our own soap and co- cough drops. I mean. Just, you know, earlier before we started, you were so kind to say that, you know, you were, had giggles and you were chuckling out this book. And we've always, with every book I do, and with especially Fred and Dave's book, it's very multidimensional, these projects. You know, they're, it's not recipe picture, recipe, method, ingredient, flip page, and then the same thing multiplied by 150 times. There's a lot of prose. There's a lot of weird things you can do. It's meant to make you laugh. Oh, I know. It's meant to make you think. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't think anybody can kind of miss that. I mean, some of your photographs are hilarious, too. I mean, I love the yeah. Swanson beef broth. And, <laughs> and one of the recipes I really got a kick out of was the yeah, making your own bouillon. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so we have um, bouillon cubes that we actually make with um, what you would make hashish like pucks yes, with. That's what I said. I got that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, something I find funny. hilarious, although, I mean, it's really not hilarious. It's just something about it, the, the way that these frog legs are arranged. I, I thought that was so hilarious. Crispy yeah. frog legs. I mean, it's my warped sense of humor, I guess. Well, not really, because when frog legs are breaded, they look like pants. Uh-huh. So it is funny. <laughs> it, looks, it looks like, you know, pants down frogs. So, yeah. Yeah, I see. So, I mean, like, what, what what is Joe Beef? I mean, anyhow. Yeah. Joe Beef is a restaurant on Notre Dame Street in Montreal's St. Henry neighborhood um, that started in 2005. Um, it is a market fresh French restaurant. It um, has an incredible wine list that grows bigger kind of every year. Um, but at the same time, Joe Beef is very simple. And we talk in the book about how when people walk through the doors from Pittsburgh or Philly or New York and they expect 11 Madison, we can see <laughs> the, the disappointment <laughs> in their eyes because they're essentially <laughs> traveled five hours to sit in a woodshed <laughs> in the freezing north. Uh, but I mean, as such, and what I think Fred and David get is, you know, I say this in the prologue, um, they don't really understand hospitality. 
Um, yeah, uh, that's you know, sincere. Very sincere. It's very sincere. Yes. It's very sincere, and I think that the book um, plays to that, and the whole idea of this apocalypse is that, yeah, it's the last day on Earth, so let's do it in style. And, and it is. It really is. Um, but, but I think Joe Beef is something else as well. Yeah, who is? Let's Joe, do the, not Joe, what, I mean, the who is Joe Beef. I mean, Joe, yeah, Joe Beef is beyond a restaurant. I mean, yeah, Joe Beef is, Joe Beef is, is, um, is a, is a life, It's a lifestyle. It's a... It's a concept yeah, of, okay. of how to behave. It is. It's definitely a concept and a way to behave. And, you know, just uh, Joe Beef was also a man. Joe Beef, and this is what has to do with hospitality. Joe Beef was this man whose name was Charles McKiernan, who lived uh, in near Montreal the, in St. Henry after the Crimean War and had a tavern and for all the hookers and wolf rats and sailors and you know, uh, the kind of lost, he would feed them, and then you just had to clean the tavern, which is, in essence, hospitality and generosity. Yeah, I mean, you, so he, we so didn't actually mention Montreal. I mean, so he's a real person. Yeah, I said. Yeah, he's a real person. Joe Beef Charles existed. Yeah, well, he existed. Yeah, he, he, they have a newspaper clipping in the book about Okay, all right, papers. very good. Well, I didn't know, I mean... Uh, I probably should yeah. have. So there are, probably should there have, but I did four restaurants run by this group too. Yeah, yeah, got that, got that, got that earlier on. So, do, do you want to run through those quickly? Sure. So there's Joe Beef, there's Liverpool House, there's Vin Papillon, and there's Mont Lapin, the one that's in Little Italy. And actually, there's a fifth that's just um, just recently opened, but it's quite far west, and it's called McKeon and Luncheonette. And I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, like uh, 2008, 2009, beside Joe Beef, there was a luncheonette called McKiernan. Right. We needed the, Fred and David, the restaurant group, needed the space uh, to make that Joe Beef. And so it closed and everyone was bummed because it's a sandwich shop and soups and it's very casual and very, very tasty mm-hmm. and great desserts, great pieces of pie, great pastries. And so this industrial kind of in this weird no man's land west, they decided to open this luncheonette in a, in a, in a huge loft. Uh-huh. Um, this, you have things like, well, sweetbreads, Prince of Darkness. I kind of like that one. Where you reference yeah. Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell us about yeah, that. that. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of example of a recipe where there's a lot going on because the it's a reference to Ozzy Osbourne. It's a reference, uh, and then the darkness part is it's sweetbreads in charcoal. Yes. And then we also talk about how we weren't really moved. You know, in a lot of Nordic countries, the use of char- charcoal yeah. is a bit for Instagram. Yeah. yeah, Instagram worthy. But here's a here's actually an opportune moment to use it. But you know that now you're thinking of a Sharon too. A Sharon. Yeah. <laughs> um, the I I like your reason for including soap is because you have so much acid. I mean, ashes and rainwater and, and ashes make a lie, which is what you need to make soap. <laughs> yeah, and then this is when, you know, Fred and David would put in the dirty comment of, 
you know, and hopefully the nuclear winter will end and you want to um, come out of your bunker with a new baby in the spring. And so you got to keep clean when you're in the bunker also. Tell us about your uh, chips and your potato chip roadmap. Okay, so uh, we we felt that the U.S. being relatively, being quite new world and relatively, um, you know, one of our favorite places to travel, Fred uh, did a, a road trip all around, and I'm really, I'm quite well traveled in the U.S., and um, we felt that the thing that's the most indicative of terroir in the U.S. is their potato chips. <laughs> Uh, because the best thing about traveling when you're in a car from state to state is checking into the what we call depeneurs, what you call convenience stores or roadside gas stations, mm-hmm. and seeing what's on the junk food um, rails. And so, you know, I love Better Made from Detroit. I love Tim's from Oregon. Uh, you know, we list some of Fred's Fred's favorites. Um, you know, I haven't spent any time in Texas, Louisiana, in the South, but he has, and uh, that was the idea. Well, <laughs> tell us, now, I couldn't figure out if he was serious about microwave foie or not. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a good question, because we weren't allowed, there was a book that came out, and we weren't allowed to put the cover, we didn't get the rights to put the cover of the old book, so it is a bit confusing. There is this book that's really hilarious and kind of depressing called Microwave Cooking for One from the 70s. And if you Google it, you'll see the page. You'll see the cover of that book. And we did an exact replica of the cover of that book. Who was the author? Was was Um, that that woman who's dead now? She Um, died. She was funny. Barbara, Barbara somebody. I'll look right now. But anyway, so this... That picture is a riff on on that book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know of any other microwave book, but <laughs> but uh, yeah. And then I mean, then in the middle of this book, you open up, and here's a picture of this great landscape, and here's a nude man walking his dog. <laughs> yeah. We. Um, uh, oh, by the way, microwave for one was by. Sonia Allison, oh, Sonia S O N I A. If you check out the cover, you'll you'll get it right I away. See. Okay. Um, so that what people you know that comes back to hospitality and generosity for me and for Fred and Dave, I think that if you're spending forty dollars on our book, we want to give you as much as possible. We understand it's a lot of money, and uh, that that image is. Um, Peter Doig, probably one oh, of the yeah. best painters sure. of the last couple of decades. Great. We have it Kim familiar style-wise, actually. Interesting. Yeah, we have Kim Dorland, who did a great zombie one that's in there. We have Peter Hoffer. You know, yeah, you reference zombies a lot. <laughs> I guess they go with yeah, the apocalypse. Yeah, the apocalypse. <laughs> For sure. I have to tell you, I just hit on this. I laughed my way through the whole book. A horse ceviche. <laughs> that is the first. <laughs> right, and what we say in that head note is because it's never been done. Exactly. So voila. <laughs> yeah. For good reason. Here's a, here's a question for you. Think think about yeah. this one for a second, and and realize that you're not on you're not on the public airwaves, so you can say anything you like. 
But has there ever been anything that you wanted to put in the book and then you said, we couldn't possibly do that? <laughs> is, there, yeah. is, there, is there anything you decided you had to leave out? Out. Out. Pronounced like a true Canadian. No, I think we just do whatever we want. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone, you know, other than like the very mundane dull reasons, for example, we couldn't get the picture of that that copyright of that microwave cooking for one. Um, Everything, Knopf was really uh, liberal with us, and they knew what they were signing up for (laughs) when it, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, go into acquisitions with our book and expect uh, um, what's kind of a, a Giada book, you know, or an Ina book. We're not yeah. Ina. <laughs> um, yeah, the, I, I love your photograph of Artichokes Bravas, which I thought was hilarious, too, is a, a plate with a skull on it. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, a very famous uh, symbol of, it's called Steal Your Face, and it's from the Grateful Dead, and it's their... Grateful Dead, the band, it's their symbol. Oh, that's what, I know I got the reference, I didn't at first. Yeah. And and you have deer, deer belly, (laughs) that's a good one. Yeah, the deer belly is a really great apocalypse uh, recipe, and, you know, just going back to the Grateful Dead for a minute, I'm not a fan. Uh, I'm not not a fan, but I'm not a super fan, Um, but David... uh, you know, here's one thing I can we can talk about more liberally on on this than other things. Is David got his start in the restaurant business because David sold drugs. He was yeah, a drug dealer. Yeah, you have a it teenager. in the book. It's not a secret. Yeah. you have it in the book. Yeah. So um, that's how he when ended he was not, up as a chef, actually. Yeah, and when he was uh, not dealing drugs, he was going to Grateful Dead shows mm-hmm. all around. And when he would go to Grateful Dead shows, you know. He would be on the back of a truck, and someone would say, "Hey, do you, would you like me to get you a beer? Could I make you some food in our camper trailer? Would you like my extra ticket? I want you to have the best night ever." And for him, he says that that's how he learned hospitality. So that was our Grateful Dead reference with the plate. So, and what about Beauty Special Saint Honoré? So the beauty special Saint Honoré was kind of dedicated to the Jewish in-laws I never had. Uh-huh. It's uh, basically how to how to impress um, your Jewish family. Uh, it's unreal, and, listeners. You yeah. just have to see. I mean, there's all these swans. I mean, it's just <laughs> yeah. So it's a puff. A, it's a puff. mix of a Saint Honoré and puff paste, <laughs> and then we did the swans sticking up in puff paste, and then we fill the we fill it with. Um, beauties like our, our uh, Jewish deli here in Montreal has a different smoked fish and uh, fish eggs, and so the middle of the puff paste is white fish and smoked salmon, and there's poppy seeds as a reference. Yes, I saw the poppy yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, now you know, I mean this is, this book is going to be a great present for for the holidays, I would think. Um, I and think so. It, you have sections on it on at dinner. Etiquette for children. You have, um, I mean, everything's on the cabinet of deer necks. Um, you have the a healthy s- section, and and I wanted to jump to the back and have you say a thing about the um, the native 
uh, the native uh, Indians, the native um, mm-hmm. resident, what do you call them? He would yeah, call them so, Native Americans, but what do you call Native Can- yeah. Canadians? Yeah, Native Canadians. So for us, we uh, when we did the first book, you know, we talked about how um, when Samuel de Champlain came across the ocean from France, he, you know, brought with him 2,000 cases of Bordeaux, and when he got here, you know, it became Nouvelle France, and this is where French Canadians learned how to eat, and this is, we kind of continue to give the history of our city. And uh, after that book came out, David received a very frank yet friendly email that said, Hi, I'm uh, Tayayaki Elfred, professor of Native Studies at the University of British Columbia, and actually that's not what happened. There were people here when the French came, obviously and famously, and we and I feel that there is a glaring omission Right. In your first book, and can we talk, and I'm from Kanawage, and if you, if you know Joe Beef at all, Joe Beef is a, a 10 minutes from the Mercier Bridge, and the Mercier Bridge gaps Montreal over the St. Lawrence to the Kanawage Native Reserve. So we're literally 15 minutes in traffic from the Native Reserve, and we didn't mention them, and we felt like such assholes, oh, and we right. felt so embarrassed, and we just said, yeah, come to the restaurant, let's make this right, and uh, he, you know, we became fast friends, and um, there's this other great guy named Eric McComer, who's a surgeon, fisherman, and kind of a jack-of-all-trades, and right. uh, fishes caviar, and he took us around, and that's what that chapter is all about. And, you know, it's not just a take on, on Native Canadian uh, recipes, it's a Joe Beef take. Uh-huh. So there's a bit of irreverence. Um, but yeah, I'm happy with how that turned out. Well, I'm, I'm happy for the whole book. And, and oh, thank Meredith you. Erickson, I just think it's wonderful. Um, again, the book is Joe Beef Surviving the Apocalypse. And I think, I think everybody really knows mm-hmm. himself or herself to buy a copy of this. We're, all, we're, we're already anxious for you to pr- produce the third Joe Beef book. <laughs> Oh, guys, you got to give me a couple. Give me a couple minutes over here, but I promise I'll think about it. Okay, Meredith, okay. thank you so so much. Thank you so so much. Thank, thank you. you. Ciao. Okay. Bye. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Our next guest is Naomi Nachman. And, boy, I don't know what this woman doesn't do. She does just about everything. Um, and she's and, and an she, Aussie. She's done, done it a wide variety of different places. Yes, it's true. Anyhow, l- listen to Naomi talk about her latest book, Perfect Flavors. Naomi Nachman your book is called Perfect Flavors, Creative, Easy-to-Prepare Recipes Inspired by My Family and Travels, and it is indeed an eclectic cookbook. <laughs> you were 
influenced by all kinds of, of different places and customs and uh, cuisines, right? Hello? Hi. Yes, yes. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I guess to start with, I should ask you what in your mind is the perfect flavor. Oh, the perfect flavor. Well, you know, my perfect flavor and your perfect flavor might be a little bit different. Yes. So, you know, I always say cookbook is a guide to what the, you know, to the uh, author of the recipe thinks it should be. And then you find your own inner chef and then you find your perfect flavor. But to me, a perfect flavor just starts with, you know, you've got to have salt and then build it from there and great fresh ingredients. Yeah, I love this. You believe the salt is really essential. I mean, that's, I think, one of the hardest things to get right in cooking. Yeah, it's true. But you've got everyone's palate's a little bit different. So whenever I cook, you know, I'm a personal chef as well. So whenever I cook for a client, I'll always ask them, you know, what do they like, light salt, heavy salt? But they've got to try to go a bit neutral in the middle so they can always season more if they like because... You know, so many people who sit down at the table before they even taste the food, they start salting it. Yeah, I know. There's, there's, one, there's one sitting right across the table. Well, I know. I mean, we've been married for so long, and I'm, I've tasted his cooking for so long. I know the items that he salts and doesn't salt. Right. I mean, for example, my salad. I don't put dressing on my salad, so I know I need to put salt and pepper on it. Right, right. So, yeah. Anyhow. Well, um, the, the, the secret, the secret, the main secret is out. What goes into an Aussie meat pie? Oh, yeah. Ah, let all the Americans know what what Aussies like to eat. <laughs> now, you know, we're jumping in the middle here. We, we yeah. haven't explained your story. Um, you were born and, and grew up in Sydney, Australia, right? Yep, that is correct. Um, fill us in on what happened next. Well, between arriving in New York and today... <laughs> Um, no, from Sydney, you went where? You went so, to so I, left, I left, so I left Sydney. I graduated high school. Um, I spent a year in Israel, and that's where my eyes got opened up to a world of amazing food. The Middle East has incredible Mediterranean food and is Middle Eastern food, and just it's like wow, there was food everywhere. And growing up kosher in Sydney, Australia is a small Jewish community with limited restaurants. And I get to Israel, I'm like, boom, there's food everywhere. So I, 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 I didn't hold myself back. I ate wherever I could, whenever I could. I just loved it. Became really like a big restaurateur yeah. <laughs> uh, at the young age of 18. Um, and then I went back to Australia for two years. And then I came to America for a friend's wedding. And wow, again, boom, New York, kosher food everywhere. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, but you don't keep kosher strictly. Uh, I keep strictly kosher. Do you? Well, you have... I know that some of your tips uh, are for making an, an item par, right? Well, when I, when, when I traveled, I always brought my own food with me, or I couldn't always eat. I would say, and I say this in the book, I eat with my eyes. So, like, I would look, see what the chefs are doing, um, watch the food being made. I'd either go, ask to go into the back of the kitchens and talk to the chefs at the hotels, or see the street food. You know, I was in Bangkok and I watched them, you know, make spring rolls on the streets in front of me and I looked at the ingredients and I'm like, wow, this looks amazing. I'm going to go back to home in New York and make this myself. And I did, and that recipe's in the book, just from me watching what they were making literally on the streets of Bangkok. And I could go home and make them kosher. And now I'm bringing this to the, the kosher home. Okay, so you, all these recipes in this book are kosher. A hundred percent kosher. So, you know, they don't have to be, you know, 
you can make them how you want, and these are my suggestions, but, you know, it's 100% kosher recipes, delicious. You don't have to be Jewish to enjoy these recipes. You don't have to be kosher to enjoy these recipes. It's just good food, and that's what it is. It's That's great food that just happens to be kosher. Yeah, well, Peter's not, he's modest. He's not telling you he's probably the greatest producers of latkes in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've made some crazy latkes this week. Trust me. <laughs> well, I, but I did. But I never, I never made any sweet ones. Yeah, you have good sweet ones in here. I, I, I make, I make savory ones. Okay, so so I have my cheese latkes, which are a little bit sweet and savory. Okay, uh-huh. and then you right got, there with perfect flavors. And then you've got one that has some fruit in it. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's got some, a little bit. You know what I think we ought to do, by the way? I'm, I'm definitely going to try it. I mean, there's no question about it. That's delicious. It's, I've had a lot of pictures of pe- people send me, like I'm on Instagram, and people are sending me all their pictures to my Instagram account of the food that they're making for my book, and I repost it and reshare it. It's amazing to see everyone making my recipes. No wonder you're having a good time. <laughs> I'm having a great time, and it's all from the home, my kitchen. Now, now, you're in the broadcasting game too, right? Yeah, I would like to ask her, why don't you uh, just outline all the many facets of, of your profession? Oh, but, my uh, gosh. It's so hard to say. Well, but now I can say cookbook, although this is actually my second book. My first book, uh, Perfect for Passover, uh, sold about 13,500 books in just a couple of weeks last year um, when it came out, when it debuted March of 2017. This is my second book in 19 months. So the last two years I've been heavily involved in cookbook writing. As well as that, I run uh, kosher cooking competitions as well. You know, the, from Food Network, all these kosher cooking, all these uh, cooking competitions have become very popular. So I took that concept and bring it into people's homes of, of cooking competitions uh, I write for magazines, newspapers. I have a radio show called Table for Two on the Nachum Siegel Network. I just anything involved with food. I'm a personal chef, do <laughs> catering. Where, where I don't do you have time to do all this. I know it's crazy, and you know I'm a grandma as well. I have a a five month old granddaughter. Oh my goodness, really? Yeah. So I'll be darned. Oh. Yeah, and I'm only forty eight. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, we hey, hey, yes. We won't. We won't get asked, but we're very proud of you. Thank you. She's so cute. Now, as I said, there's so many different influences, uh, especially you're fond of street food, but you also like a variety, a wide variety of ethnic cuisines. Um, Do you have an example recipe that would show both uh, the influence of a a particular culture or cuisine, um, your own inventiveness, regards to that and how it's also kept kosher. Okay, so let's take the Bami sandwich from Vietnam. Have you ever had oh, a Bami sandwich? Yes. This Delicious. Is, I, I did note that one when I was reading the cookbook. Yeah, go right. Ahead. So I love sandwiches in general. I love good bread, a good sandwich, good ingredients. I like, and I like a crunch, and I like the protein, and I like the creaminess. So that Bami, when I first time I had a Bami sandwich, I fell in love. And I had it here, like I'm, I had... And a friend had made one at a dinner I was at, at a potluck dinner. She made these barmy sandwiches. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And then a year later, I ended up going on a cooking tour. Um, uh, uh, it wasn't a cooking tour, a tour of Vietnam, a kosher tour of Vietnam uh, with Miriam Schreiber. Her name, uh, the t- name of the company is Miriam Schreiber's Kosher Legacy Tours. She takes Jewish groups around the world on tour. 
Um, It was amazing. She reached out to me. She didn't know who I was. She saw us on Instagram. She goes, you seem like you have a perky personality and you give classes. Would you like to come on tour with me and you'll give classes? And I'm like, and we're going to Thailand and Vietnam. I'm like, oh, my God, they're one of my favorite flavor profiles is food from that region. So I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to do a Bami sandwich when when we go. Um, so I started like, you know, looking up barmy sandwiches and trying to, trying to make a kosher style because they have dairy and meat together and traditionally kosher food is not mix, mixing meat and milk and, and we don't eat pork and so I had to come up with a kosher version. So then my own twist became I love tuna. I could eat a tuna sandwich. I'm very traditional when it comes to, you know, lunchtime. I could eat a tuna, lettuce and tomato sandwich every day. So I'm like, okay, great. Let's take that concept of a tuna sandwich and turn it into a seared tuna balmy sandwich. So the seared tuna, seared fresh tuna instead of just canned tuna, became my protein, elevated the, the tuna in the, in the recipe, and then I made my own creamy sauce and then my own pickled vegetables, and voila, I had this amazing balmy sandwich that was, you know, that's kosher, that's traditional to Asian, you know, to the Vietnamese influences, and it was delicious, and it's been a big, really big hit in the book. Yes, I mean, I'm looking at it. Your, your photographer did a great job, too. She's amazing. A big shout-out to Miriam Pascal. She's a very big photographer, food blogger. She's actually done two of her own books where she wrote the recipes and photographed them, and for me, she was my photographer. So she's one of the new kind of food bloggers that have come out and uh, cookbook authors that are, are becoming food writers and photographers. Well, I'm just a food writer. She can do both. Very talented. Now, uh, are you amazed at all about this sudden interest in Israeli cuisine? Look at the top chefs in America, all exactly. Israelis. Yeah. You know, uh, we have Michael Solomonov, yeah. Alon Shayalon. By the way, sorry, Michael has a new book out. I know. I, I can't wait to get. it. I'm going to go get it for myself on Sunday. It's my Hanukkah present to myself. Uh-huh. Alon Shaya, you've got. Um, I love Alon Shaya. He's uh, a good friend of ours. Oh, okay. I have. I'm a big fan of his. I've, I can't. You know, I love to eat his food. When he, when they, I keep telling them they need to do a kosher pop up restaurant for us kosher people. We are big fans of theirs. Um, uh, who else is there? Um, Yotam Otolengi out in England. He's an Israeli chef. Israeli board chef. It's amazing how the Israeli chefs have become one of the top chefs in the world. Mayor Adoni is opening up some restaurants here in New York, who's Israeli based. It's amazing. Yeah, well, you can't beat the, the Middle Eastern flavor profiles, can you? Yeah, we can. We can just as long as they don't mix meat. We can make the recipes kosher. Right now, um, you are in your book. You give attention to hummus. I just read a uh, trends report saying that the this is 2019 will be the year of the hummus, except I thought the year of the hummus has been the last five years. <laughs> I, I agree with you. It's the last five years. Hummus has had a, such a massive comeback. We all had hummus growing up. We didn't just didn't think it will be the star of the show in 2000 and almost 19. It's still the star of the show. Yeah. You have some funny, quirky recipes. Tell our listeners about Kweetza. Kweetza. <laughs> How crazy is that? That's crazy. So I love pizza and I love quiche and so does my family. I was literally driving somewhere. Like, you know, when you drive on a highway, your brain daydreams. Like one part of your brain drives and one part of the brain thinks about food. Well, that's how it goes for me in any case. So I was thinking about it. Like I'm like, oh, maybe I'll do a mashup of pizza and quiche. 
And then I was thinking, how am I, what am I going to call it? And then all of a sudden, like, I'm creature. Like, literally popped into my head. I'm like, okay, I pulled over. I wrote the word down, Quizza, Q-U-I-Z-Z-A. Um, and then, because I, I was, you know, I, I couldn't, I was literally in the middle of the road. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, I couldn't start. So I came home, and then I Googled the word Quizza, and nothing came up. I'm like, <laughs> awesome. Like, some, some like, shop in Israel had sold something, like, like a, had a sign saying Quizza. I'm like, but there was no recipe. It was just a sign. There was nothing there. So I'm like, great, I'm going to make a quiche that tastes like a pizza. And it does. (laughs) This is a good day to have George Bush jokes, I guess. Why? (laughs) Somebody told the joke about W. W. Bush. He was having lunch with his favorite friend, Dick Cheney. And he was looking through the menu and trying to figure out what to do. And he said, I know what I'll do. I'll order a quickie. (laughs) <laughs> which is how an ignorant Texan pronounces quiche just in case just in oh case. that's so funny okay there you go just in case you didn't figure that out no 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 that's funny so anyhow you you have a number of sweet recipes in here um, my favorite looking through them is your loaded babka yeah Oh, my head special. Talk to us about that. So babka is again, become like, you know, we've been eating it forever, you know, since I'm a kid. And, you know, babka made the front of the Food and Wine magazine this year. You know, babka's back. Yeah. You know, people are putting pulled beef in it and, and, and making savory dishes with it and really? doing crazy twists on sweets. Feeling like I'm doing. So, you know, I, I had to put in lotus. I love lotus butter. Uh-huh. Now, now you do you do have something missing. Yeah. What? Peter's, you, you, he's been fussing about that. No, you have a you, you have a you have a you are missing a genuine Aussie hamburger with 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 uh, beetroot in it and a, and a sunny side up fried egg. Oh, on you top. are right. You are right. That is a bit. I was thinking, where's he going with this? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Beetroot, beetroot, and. Um, Beetroot and a fried egg. Yeah, that's very Aussie. Or pineapple. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't do that. Pa- yeah, it's actually it's really good. But, yeah, I, was, I, gonna, I, I didn't want a hamburger in the book. My hamburger is my lentil burger, and then I have a shawarma burger. There yeah. you go. Now, you, he was complaining earlier that you didn't have a pavlova recipe in here. I do have one in my first cookbook. Okay, well, it's oh, not okay. in this one. Well, it's not in this one. I have your first one. You also don't have a lamington, thank goodness. Oh, yeah, you people said, where's the lamington? lamington. So I'm like, nah, I'm not doing lamington. I, I never it. really liked that. So but I, I have it. Anzac biscuit. That's yeah, so looking, Aussie. Yeah, I'm looking right here at Anzac. Ends at that very page, de- dating from 1915. That's right. Anzac biscuits go have a long history, so I had to have that in. Mom, we love them. My mum always makes them for my kids, so had to have Anzac biscuits in. Well, it, it seems like this is has a, a really strong audience potential here, huh? Yeah, we've sold nearly 10,000 books in five weeks, so That's I'm really excited. I hope everybody grabs a copy. Is that because of the holidays or just because it was it was lacking? We were lacking in having this book, right? Yeah, I like to think it's a little bit of both. Uh-huh. Well, what, what, when you read about your kids stealing food out of the saucepans. <laughs> yeah, I think that's cool. You <laughs> crunchy it, Brussels sprouts, that will be worth trying. Just get, <laughs> get the kids to eat vegetables. I think that's what happens with the latkes, right? And the latkes. The latkes never make it to the table. <laughs> right, right, right. It's true. They eat them out of the frying pan. That's a big problem. I actually got a license to to, to make latke on our last visit to uh, 
her son and his wife. I was ba- I was banned for several years because he kept setting off the smoke detectors, <laughs> the smoke alarms, so I, so and I, the kids would giggle. You know, yeah, so, I, so I took my box grater all the way to Philadelphia, and I and I never got him on the menu. <laughs> well, That's we have terrible. a lot of fun uh, with your book, and thank and, you, and, and I'm hoping that. A lot of people will pick it up and have as much fun as, with it as we have. Thank you so much. We've sold a couple thousand on Amazon or at your local bookstore. Um, but really, probably the best way for people to get it is on Amazon. It's just been right. an incredible. I've had so much great feedback and letters and photos that people are sending me. Everyone's becoming interactive these days with social oh, yeah. media being what it is. And, you know, I just hit 20,000 followers on Instagram, which was such a thrill. Um, I got to go to Israel last week and meet the Prime Minister of Israel. A whole bunch of food bloggers were invited. So it's really nice that the kosher foodies uh, have a big voice now. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah. (laughs) Was that Netanyahu that you met? Sorry? Was that Benjamin Netanyahu? I met him last week and and, um, the President of Israel, Ruby Rivlin. You might might have to send the recipes to the... To the jailhouse kitchen. <laughs> <For nothing. laughs> right, right. We, we actually did a tribute. I was there for the Jewish Media Summit, and we actually did a tribute photo for the uh, Pittsburgh massacre last uh, was last week. Yeah, that's about. It's less than a mile from where, from where we live. Yeah. Yes. So that was a startler. Uh, yeah. We, 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 let's change the subject. <laughs> yes, it's too bad. Anyhow, yeah. again, Naomi Nachman. And it's perfect flavors, and um, you don't have to be Jewish to love these recipes. Just have to love food and be excited about food like I am. Right. Thank, thank you so much for joining. Much success, Naomi. Thank nice you so much. You. It was so lovely speaking with you both. Thank you. Bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. The last segment of this program, and we're going to be talking to Guillermo Pernod. And I guess the unusual thing about this is he's writing about um, food and uh, restaurants and chefs in Cuba when they don't actually have any restaurants. <laughs> but yeah. They have paladares parad- par- yeah. and, and in people's that's, homes. That's, that's, the, the, the status of that is changing a little bit. But it's still, we are, we did think it's somewhat unusual to have a cookbook from a country and a cuisine that doesn't have any restaurants. Yeah, well, but anyhow, um, he talks about modern uh, Cuban cuisine, which is something that I'm interested in knowing about. Okay, so let's have it for Guillermo. Guillermo? Guillermo. Guillermo Bernal, you and uh, Lourdes Castro, um, who I believe is Cuban, um, wrote a Cuba Cooks, is the book, Recipes and Secrets from Cuban Paladares and Their Chefs. 
you yourself um, are from Argentina, but you married a Cuban. Do I have that right? That's correct. You also have a series of, of Cuban restaurants called Cuba Libre, right? That's correct. There okay. are four of them, and they are located in Philadelphia at the Tropicana Casino in Atlantic City uh, in Orlando. Florida, and in Washington, D.C. Okay. Well, we, we lived in D.C. and Philadelphia um, before your time, most likely. Uh, you know, I, I found this enlightening, this Cuba Cooks, the book, um, because I had this idea I knew about Cuban food because my cousin, um, my late cousin Fran, married a, um, a Cuban uh, exile, and he cooked. Uh, but he he came. I, I mean, I could now. I've read your book. I understand that it's not what Cuban cooking is like now. I mean, he came from um, a, a, a wealthy, aristocratic family with a um, a chef on staff, and the kinds of food he made is the kind of food that you don't get there anymore, pretty much. Um, he did a wonderful, um, uh, what was it? He, it was uh, a whole pig roast. He did, a, we did a pig roast with him, but he didn't do the full thing. He said, their chef, uh, and where were they from? I can't remember. Ori- Oriente, Oriente Province. Oriente Province. That their chef used to bone this pig and then stuff it as though it looked like it wasn't boned. And I don't think right. they do that in Cuba much anymore. <laughs> with the wrapping. Well, and, they do, uh, uh you know, one of the parts of the book uh, is talked about the Finca de Miguel. This is a friend That's of mine right. that has a farm. And he had some people, and they were they roast this pig. It's called Alapua because yes. it's ro- roasting this stick. And they, by hand, they turn it for the next eight hours. And it was amazing. Yeah, but we, we did that with Pepe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they do that, you know. Uh, you have to remember that King, uh, the pig, the pork is king in Cuba, uh-huh. and they love it. I mean, they, they they don't have that many other animals that they can eat. You know, like they don't have cattle or or they don't eat meat, uh, red meat, but uh, they use goats and sheep yeah, and, goat, and yeah. pigs a lot. So they still do it. They still do it. Um, well, I no, guess what I'm trying to say is that reading your book, I realize um, there's a whole new dimension to the chefs cooking at the, uh, the Paladares because correct. they they have to be very nimble because they never know what they're going to find in the market and what's available. So they've got to That's be correct. very creative as opposed mm-hmm. to what I thought. There were these traditional recipes that got done over and over and over again. I, you, you can't do that now with the rationing and the supply. So you, you've got to be much more creative and flexible. But the, the, you have to remember the rationing is for the uh, average citizen. The paladar uh, now is, is not running with Cuban pesos. It's being run with cooks, which is a convertible peso, which is uh, worth a lot more money than a, pe- a Cuban peso does. So all the negotiations that they're done in the market they're running cooks. So this market, you go and they buy the farmer's market. Uh, the farmers come in uh, every day and they and sometimes twice a week in different kinds and they bring different products on the market 
that's what the chef make the the menus with. Now, per- perhaps we should explain for the, for those people who know even less about Cuba than we do. Yeah, tell us about paladares. Tell, tell, explain to our listeners about the paladares and and what's involved in 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 having one because it's not not easy. I understand. Well, you have to apply for a license. A paladar uh, is a, a a private entity, a private business that is usually run in somebody's home. Uh, in the old days, a paladar could only be run in somebody's home, and that they can have only up to 12 seats. And the only people that can work in this paladar, let's call it paladar slash rest, were the people that live in that house. Now, uh, they are entrepreneurs in Cuba that the rent or, uh, or they, they become partners with a person that has a, a house, a beautiful house or a building, and they apply for a license to run this restaurant. Right now, you can only do uh, up to 50 people, mm-hmm. and that's it. That is, that's all they entitled. So, do you still have so rest, do they still have regular restaurants that are publicly owned? Well, Public, you mean by the government? Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, those are government restaurants. And what are they uh, like? They're, <laughs> they're terrible. I imagine. <laughs> they, are, <laughs> they are terrible. Uh, because everything, it's like a big union. And nobody wants to do anything. Nobody <laughs> knows how to do anything. Nobody can get fired. No, you know, unless they steal. And okay. that's it. So, well, I think it's a complicated history, but I think it's worth noting how the sequence of people coming into Cuba and all the influences that melted into what we refer to as Cuban cuisine. That's correct. Well, you have to remember that everything started with with Columbus, right? And then it was was a huge day in the 1500s. I'm sorry, 1432. Uh, Columbus uh, discovered America, and then they discovered... But there was a native group, right? Native uh, um, inhabitants? The Taino Indians were the Indians that usually there, or residing in the islands of Cuba. And they discovered uh, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Puerto Rico, etc. But anyway, so after that, the influence obviously was Spanish. And a lot of people from Sevilla used to come, uh, migrate to, to the Americas. And Cuba had a huge influence of people from Sevilla. So that's why you start seeing a lot of rice dishes. Okay, well, we've been to Sevilla. All right, and you yeah. have the Moorish influence also. Right. Correct? Yes. So that you, you start seeing all that. And then, of course, the English came in, and then the French came in, then the American. Huge exodus of French in there. And also, um, I read a a book about the mass migration from Haiti to Cuba. Uh Aha, that's correct. And I will get to that in in a minute. So so then you you start seeing uh, the Haitians coming in, but and that, then you see the difference in in the cuisine of the island. And remember the Haitians. I'll, I'll get back to that. Then the, the Americans come in, and the, the English come in again, and then the Americans come in. 
and then the Spanish come in again, and the Americans, and then the Russians. So you start seeing this huge, uh, and let's not forget the Chinese. Yeah, you know, the Chinese huge workers, right, yeah. That's right. So there was a huge inf- variety of influences in Cuban cuisine. And West it, Africa, and then, right? From the, uh, that's correct. Nigerian. Yeah. Yes. That's right. And because they needed, they needed uh, slaves to run the, the sugar plantation mm-hmm. and the tobacco plant. But the Haitians then, they came to the east part of the island. And that's where you see the, the different styles of cooking in the island. And the east, you see a lot of chocolate, coconut, and spi- a little bit of a spicy food. On the, on the west and central, you see, uh, on the central part, you see more of cattle and pigs and etc. And then you go to the west and you start seeing more uh, tobacco and you start seeing also um, a lot of, of vegetables in, the, in Pinar del Rio. So, so it's, a, it's a big island. I'm, with a lot of influences yeah. of different cuisines. You said the and Cubans course, don't like vegetables. They don't like greens. They have a, a, a heightened sweet tooth. I thought that was interesting. I never noticed that. They do, but la- lately they're starting to discover, especially if you go towards the west, to the province of Pinar del Rio, you start seeing farms, beautiful little farms that they, they grow everything organic, and they start opening little paradise in the farm, and everything that you eat comes with a hundred meters. The one you sit in, and the, the and the majority of the of the menus are vegetarian. It's very very unique. The culture is changing, uh, uh, and the food is changing, as you can see in the book. You, in the book, you don't see any rice and beans recipe. Yeah, I mean, those are the things I remember from Pepe. I remember uh, his escabeche fish, Uh escabeche de pescado. Uh uh, That I remember, and that um, uh, the beans and rice dish. And he made something with ground beef all the time, too. Right, picadillo. Yeah, that's it. And, uh, And to this day, I use his black bean soup recipe. <laughs> Except I put in a ham hock, and my cousin told me that was not right because it was intended to be a vegetarian dish. That's right. At the restaurants at Cuba Libre, our black bean soup and our black beans are vegetarian. Okay. A lot of Cubans, when they start coming to the Americas, they starting to add pieces of pork into it that I know. So, but it's not true, true Cuban. The majority of Cuban uh, black beans or red beans, if you go to the West, uh, are vegetarian. So you, you also write about people cooking and s- smoking meats out, almost like out in the countryside. That's right. As I was driving through the countryside, you see people coming out of the bushes, let's call it, and they have cheeses and chickens or different meats that they smoke uh, because it's illegal for them. See, the farmer doesn't own the land. Right, right. The, the, the government owns the land. They just give it to the farmer to work. The farmer is allowed to keep a percentage of the harvest for themselves, and the rest has to be sold to the government, right? So... Uh, 
or the government takes it, uh, one way or another. <laughs> so, but this uh, farmer need to make money because they don't, the government doesn't pay them enough. So what they do is they subsidize their income by taking a little way from the government and selling it to the public, which is illegal. That's why they're hiding on the side of the highway. And so I stopped one day, and one of the, the guys came inside with his chicken. I stopped by, and I said, how do you make those chickens? So he took me, like, a, a kilometer. We walked to the house, and he showed me how he was doing them. And that, it was it, it's just amazing, yeah. you know, what they do with what they have. And he was smoking cheese also. Dairy is very rarely fine in Cuba. All the milk is powdered milk. You do find some creams and some cheeses, but very, very rarely. The average person doesn't drink, doesn't drink milk. I broke one year, I bought a chef from Cuba, and we did a pop-up paladar in Philadelphia. Oh, really? So I said, yeah. So the first thing I said, let's go to the market. Right, so I took him to the market, and I took him. I, 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 I think I was just trying to pretend that he understood what was going on. So I took him to Whole Foods. <laughs> this guy didn't know what to do. The first <laughs> thing he did, he grabbed a cart and he started filling it with yogurts, milk, and, <laughs> and I said, "I said, Lucio, where are you going with all that stuff? You stay in the hotel room. I don't know, but I." Don't, I never seen so much dairy in my life uh-huh. you know so it was so it's so sad that they don't have that privilege that we have well there's a and, lot that's you know, sad about Cuba and I was hoping that there would be a giant thaw and so forth but um, I don't know you have some really curious dishes in, in your book though like uh-huh. candied egg yolks what, tell yes, me yes like yam- yeah the yamitas yes um so basically, they they make this batter with only egg yolks and sugar, and they let them dry, and then they bread them and they cook them. It's, it's really unique. There is a very famous uh, bake shop in Old Havana, and that's what I found. You buy them by the gram, and it's about 15 cents of a cook each. The other size uh, of the ping pong ball, and uh, it's just they're amazing the way they do this. Uh, they try to, well, although eggs are sometimes difficult to find in the island, but sometimes they, they're able to do that. Well, again, uh, the sugar is coated, the egg yolks are coated with sugar, fresh lamb juice, kosher salt, vanilla extract, and more sugar for coating. And they, they're dipping a syrup of sugar, lamb juice, and cinnamon stick. Wow. And they're kind of like poached in there and then let dry and sit in there for a little bit, for 24 hours or so. It's really interesting how they find things. This is a very old recipe. Perhaps this is a, a couple of hundred years old recipe. It's nothing new. But do you, uh, use, they, they, do, you do those in your restaurants? No, we do not. No, they, are way too, they are way too sweet for our taste. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't like it. Now, tell me about this. Uh, the photographs. I mean, these are. This photograph is a, includes food and a glass of wine. Now, they don't do wine in in Cuba, do they? They do have wine, but 
no local wine. If you find Cuban wine, it's usually made out of fruit, like guayaba, mame, and stuff like and anon or pineapple. Uh, so, like a fruit wine, maybe. But you have to remember that that it's a huge uh, 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 tourism uh, industry, and it needs to be fed. Uh, there are brand new hotels opening up uh, all the time in Havana right now, and there are new resorts and golf courses opening up. And you have to allow those companies, which the majority are French and Spanish, some Chinese uh, companies, uh, restaurants, uh, I mean hotels, and they have, they have to supply them wine and everything else that they need, vodka, gin, whatever it may be. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, you can find any brand of scotch or vodka that you want in, in, in these hotels. Um, that if, if I could well, go as a tourist, uh, I would be treated to the best of the tourist kinds of things, but not necessarily the home-based uh, foods. That's correct. Hmm. That's correct. To do that, you have to travel the countryside and see what they do. And you'd be surprised what they make. Uh, we stop in places um, by the side of the road uh, in Santiago de Cuba, uh, near the, the sea, and they were making lobsters and fried Yeah, you have peppers. recipes for uh, lobster in here. I mean, how, how readily can you get lobster in Cuba? You can get lobster in Cuba. It's no problem. The problem is you have to buy it. It's illegal to buy it in the free market. You have to buy it from the markets that are owned by the government. And so it's so, expensive. But there is a black market on the toe, okay? Oh. So you can find anything in that black market on the top. Huh. You can find lobster. Now, if you serve lobster in your restaurant and you bought it illegally and you get inspected, they may pull your license away. I see. You know, I, but, I, I, but this guy on the side of the road, he was fishing it. You know, he went to the water and he got a couple of lobsters and that was it. That's what they have for dinner. And we happened to to be there at the right time at the right moment. I should say. And we cooked. Yes. Yeah. We, and, we had the a other thing there. I thought was strange was curry. I mean, when did they? Where did they get Cuban curry? Well, remember, you have an English influence in Cuba. Aha. Uh-huh. So the curry starts to come in that way. A lot of curry, a lot of black pepper, so on. There's a lot of variety. It's very complicated, though, isn't it? It is. It is. Although, sometimes they find the curry, um, and sometimes they don't have it. So every time I go, I bring uh, jars of uh, spices, like cumin, which is very uh, popular uh, spice in the Cuban cuisine. I buy them curry, black pepper, vanilla beans, are unheard of, and cinnamon, the true cinnamon, know the acacia bark. You know the canela, right. and uh, and I bring stuff like that. I bring him some chocolate sometimes. Although they have Cuban chocolate, but they don't have enough. What they have is sugar, tobacco, and rum, and that's plenty that's of it. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, do you, how often do you go? Twice a year. Well, we're going to yeah, have to come and, and test out your restaurant when we're in Philadelphia. Our kids are in Philadelphia. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, 
Well, it's all fascinating. I, I really envy your grasp of because it's a very vast, complicated scene in, in Cuba. So uh, the book is going to be a nice introduction for anybody uh, intrigued by this island. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and you'll get lots of fruit, right? Yes, yes. Well, you have to understand that this book is not a label like any other book. Does it have appetizers, main courses, fish course? I mean, it doesn't work that way. This is made by farm, land, sea, desserts, and so on. And it has been a different concept that we thought that we needed to relay that what Cuban cuisine really is and what modern Cuban cuisine is becoming. Yes, I could see is, that. It's, it's really different. different. It is totally different from, as I said, I, I thought I understood Cuban cuisine until I read your book. So, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I didn't. And we have, we had a great, uh, forward wrote by Jose Andres. Yes, he was one of my heroes. I love Jose. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, you know, if, um, we have a, we have a, uh, I think we have a great cookbook and, we're very proud of it. Yeah, again, listeners, it's Cuba Cooks, and it's very, very handsomely produced by Rizzoli as the publisher. And uh, Guillermo Pernon, uh, he writes about recipes and secrets from Cuban paladares and their chefs. And you'll get to know a, a lot about the culture and priorities of, of the country's cuisine through this. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Guillermo. Maybe we'll see you in Philadelphia. Been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to your show. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye now. Okay. So once 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 again, the clock clock has moved through an hour, even a little longer. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the program. We enjoyed presenting it for you, and we hope you'll join us again, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye bye.